0: Hi, this is Kenny Passerelli and um, we're, we're on Talking Blues.
1: You began your musical journey on the trumpet, is that correct?
0: Yes, I started... Uh, playing trumpet uh, formally with a, with an organization called the Denver Junior Police Band in Denver uh, when I was uh, seven years old. So that would be 1950. Well, I was born in 49, so it'd be 1956. And so this would be
1: big band kind of stuff a classical music?
0: No, it was a combination of march you know John Philip Sousa uh because the the organization marched in parades and then we had concerts where it was concert band would be it was not orchestra it's concert band a marching band concert band is different than an orchestra there's no violins so it's brass and woodwinds and percussion and um that's um, that's how I started my my training when i was 7 and uh the leader of the director of the organization was named Brian Jolivet and he was a um hollywood trumpet uh player back in you know in the silent film days or whatever and he'd come to denver he'd retired from that and um, uh, took the the role as director conductor and leader of this organization called the denver junior police band and it was quite a popular organization um Back in the '50s and '60s, and um, uh, and it represented Colorado at the um, the inaugural uh, the inauguration of the president every four years. The band, the top junior police band, was the inaugural band, and usually. Those are the ones who were, this is the last band, and at, when you're 16, that's it. And then it's a whole new group of, of, of band members move up the line from beginner band to the inaugural band. So um, it was a big deal to go to Washington, and I did, for uh, the inauguration of uh, of uh, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson in uh, January of 65, after Kennedy was killed. And, and um, anyway... That was um, that was my first training was with uh, we rehearsed every week with with the, with the uh, concert band and then I had a private lesson with the conductor who was a tr- ex trumpet player and I studied with him uh, every Thursday uh, from the time I was seven until I was sixteen except for the months of August every year so my training was extensive I had a fantastic teacher. And uh, I wasn't allowed to play in public school because my teacher thought it was below the level of teaching and what I was learning uh, that the public school is very difficult to teach a group of kids to practice. And, and uh, whereas this organization is all about that. So he favored not being in it. But by my sophomore year in high school, I snuck off and joined the East High School Band and, and came first year. So what can I say?
1: And then around that time, you start to pick up the bass. I,
0: yes, I did. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the time I started picking up the bass was I was already about 15. And uh, the whole, uh, the, you know, the, the Beatles had appeared, and uh, the, um, a couple of my friends who, whose parents had, had, had a little bit more money to spend. The kids got guitars, and uh, I have a really good friend, Dave Garrett. His father was an airline pilot, which back then was a big deal, and captain. So uh, he had a 1967, uh, 66, no, even that 65, he had some guitars, and we were listening to the birds, we were listening to the Beatles, and everything was really changing. And there was really no room for the trumpet. You know, I was a legit trumpet player. I really couldn't swing I could play Bach and Haydn, but, uh, and and the trumpet was going out of fashion, you know, it was pre-Chicago, you know, and uh, uh, so the trumpet wasn't, I just couldn't, I didn't feel it on the trumpet. I had a great tone and I could play great classical music, but it wasn't going to be the right instrument for me. And uh, I started hanging out with these guys who were playing guitars and they had a drum set up and there was no bass and I think somebody had a Fender six-string bass. I don't even know how that appeared. Um, Nobody wanted to play bass. Back then it was lead guitar and drums, either Ringo or Harrison clapped, whatever. So I picked up the bass, and I taught myself how to play off the first four strings of a guitar, D-E-A-D-G, by listening to records. And because I had a trained ear, it just... Um it just was the matter of time of training my left hand and I already had some dexterity with my right hand by the pistons, right? Mm-hmm. So it was just training that left hand. And because my ear was so good, uh and my passion for wanting to do it was was, was again that's the important part. You wanna spend the time, it's because you're passionate about it. And so that's when it started I say sixty-five. 66 67 high school bands 3.2 bands uh the venues in denver colorado and, and in colorado in general were there were clubs for 18 year olds because you can drink 3.2 beer in coors beer in mecca here uh the college like boulder campus cu du they had 3.2 bars and that was the very first place that bands started to play. You were, you know, required to play covers. And that's we—that's how I got my start. I was playing bass in a three-point, you know, in a band out of high school. And I had um, the, the lead singer was a, was a year ahead of me and was a popular guy in school. He was the quarterback. He, he had it all. And now he was the lead singer of a band. He did all the business. He did everything tragically he died a couple years from later of of leukemia but my start was that was my professional start where we were I was actually making money where I could buy a car my senior year Uh, so that was the beginning so by 67 I was totally uh I was bitten by the bug and I was becoming a good bass player I, I felt because I practiced
1: and what kind of music were you doing
0: well we all the cover stuff that was coming out some of the some of the not like dave clark five we were more r&b band the first band was the band called ducks d-u-x and we were uh we did like motown stuff and then we would do you know we would do uh i think we were more of an r&b man really and then we do some animals you know uh and uh, some of the Brit stuff's not real, not a Beatles band. I think, if anything, we, we might have been more of a, We were listening to a lot of rhythm and blues.
1: I didn't notice how I was doing research, but Tommy Bolin had a big impact on your life. Did he not?
0: Oh, it was a tremendous impact. And um, I met Tommy after the Ducks, after Rick, Rick the lead singer, passed away. Uh, we, uh, at a certain point you know, through high school, my senior year. And I think Rick was again, a year older than us. So he was out of high school. And I think he might've been going to CU Denver and, uh, living at his parents' house and running the band. We were getting more gigs, but something happened. He started, um, he, everybody said he was always anemic. So he started to, uh, he started to, uh, his health started to fail. And, uh, everything started to go south. And I, um, uh, once he, I remember, I still have the stool he sat on. Couldn't stand up anymore. So he'd sit on the stool and sing. And so th- there we were doing R&B stuff, and Rick was a fantastic frontman. And all of a sudden, the, it was over. It was over. Rick couldn't perform anymore. I finished my first year at the University of Denver because uh, I stayed in town because of the band, I was accepted to other schools, but I didn't leave the state, I lived in my parents' house on a full scholarship, and all I had to do was play classical music and I hated it and the rest of the time, I looked forward to the weekends playing in in the band so that band ended, and I joined another group called the Ducks and I'm sorry the the beast b e a s t as in six 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 which i didn't uh, i didn't wasn't aware of couple of the members of the band were gigantic speed freaks and were, were, were off into the unknown, you know, reading through Dylan's stuff. I mean, crazy stuff. But the band was terrific. I was just, like, kind of naive to what was going on. And this band got signed to ATCO. And we were right before we were signed, we had a little reputation in town. I started by playing trumpet, just R&B lines, and I took over playing bass. And this band, um, we peered at it was sixty-seven at this point in that summer. And this kid comes up to me at a bean or so you know, Denver was behind San Francisco and every other place. So uh this kid comes up to me, a long haired kid, he had a guitar in his hand, baggy pants, and it was Tommy Bolin. He was sixteen, sixteen, I think. He ran away from his home in Sioux City, Iowa, and was in Denver crashing on people's couches and I I think I don't think he sat in with us, but we eventually heard him play that this one particular night, and we be, he was incredible. I couldn't believe how incredible he was, and we became friends. So Tommy became my friend from then on. He went on to join a band in Boulder called Zephyr, and the Beast went on to get a deal with Atco. And we were I was living in Colorado Springs, Tommy was in Boulder, so we didn't see each other very much at that particular time. And then, uh, so Tommy was instrumental in me meeting Joe Walsh. And I say it, every time I mention his name, I said, I'll always be grateful to Tommy. And uh, he was also instrumental in me coming back to music after uh, a brief, uh, uh, st- I was in Canada. I, was, I mean, there's many stories in my life, but the, the, the ones that really, really, pointed me into the direction where I ended up having the success that I had started with me doing studio work education and in uh, meeting a Tommy Boland who calls me in Canada and says you've got to meet this guy Joe Walsh has just come into town he's looking for a bass player and I recommended I told him about you and Tommy and I had already been to New York we played in front of Miles you know Tommy was heading towards jazz I was doing studio work I was scared to be in New York because these black musicians took me aside and said, white boy, we don't need you here. We, need another, we don't need another person to feed. We need to feed our habits. We're all on heroin and get the fuck out of here. So uh, basically, I got scared. Tommy came back to Boulder and started a band called Energy. I went up to Vancouver and was doing studio work. And Tommy called me and said, Joe Walsh has moved to Boulder. He's looking for a bass player. I told him about you. And I said, Funk 49? And I'm listening to Surfs Up by the Beach Boys, and I'm turning around listening to Coltrane, and I'm listening (laughs) to to Weather Report because I met Marislavitas. I didn't meet, I I met a bunch of, I met Tony Williams in in New York in the village that summer before I ended up in Vancouver. Anyway, Tommy says, You got to talk to this guy. I said, Okay. Joe Walsh calls me, tells me what he's doing, and says he wants he's starting a new band called Barnstorm. And would I come down and check it out? He didn't say I'll buy you a ticket. He said, Would you come down and check it out? So I flew down on my money, which I was doing quite well for my age, up there doing, you know, union session television work. So I flew down, borrowed my dad's car. It was like January. It'll be Jan fifty years. In Jan- late January of 2022. So I flew uh, flew down, jumped in the car. It was snowing, drove up to Boulder, through the canyon. Fortunately, my dad had a, a, a decent Chrysler that had snow tires on it. And I meet Joe Walsh at his house up in Netherland. And I meet Joe, his wife, Stephanie at the time. He had a baby girl named Emma. And Joe Vitale. Who'd been sleeping underneath the piano for about a month, waiting for Joe to get off his ass to figure out what he was going to do and find a bass player. And that was uh, it was January of twenty twenty uh, January of nineteen seventy two. So uh, that's how it started. I uh, I listened to Joe had done two tracks in in uh, Los Angeles with his producer Bill Simsick He had one of the greatest bass players on one of the tracks Chuck Rainey one of my I idolized Chuck it's Chuck's work and so did Joe so um, uh, I think I forget the tune but it's on the first bar and Storm record and Chuck Rainey plays on that and then another song called Bird Call Morty where Walsh played bass and a fantastic bass bar so they had two tracks for his new band called Barnstorm. And basically it was his solo career. He was leaving the James King. And that's uh, it started started right then. So around that
1: time, did you not pick up the Fretless bass?
0: Well, this is what I'm leading to. I had a... I started playing the uh, Fender bass. And I don't know if you know this story, but I met Stephen Stills in 1969. Okay? And, um he i i heard the at uh, the original acetate that he had up in Gold Hill, colorado of crosby stills and nash uh somebody uh, uh and i was in the band beast we already had released we not released our record we were just going to take pictures they were doing graphics the record had been recorded in new mexico with buddy holly's producer norman petty and and clovis and so we were getting ready to launch, and I was excited about that. And I walked into um, into a, a music store in Denver. Uh, the the store it was ha- Happy Logan's and Happy Logan's son. They were the only dis distribution. Uh, they distributed uh, Fenders, Fenders, and and you know and and Gibsons and stuff. They were the they were the go-to place in downtown Denver. So I used to just go there and hang out and look at some new stuff, and you know wish I could afford to buy something I couldn't. And one day I walked in and, and ha- uh, Happy Logan's son and, uh, said to me, um, hey, man, do you know who Steve Stills is? And I said, oh, of course. I saw the Buffalo Springfield live in Denver on their only tour. He so said, they blew me away. And, and Super Session had been released. I said, I'm a big fan of Steve. He says, well, he's looking for a bass player, and he's going to be in Gold Hill, Colorado next week. And I have a number and, um, I told them about you. And, uh, uh, and so long story short, I, I meet Steve Stills. He, uh, uh, he looked exactly like he did on the cover of CSN. He had a, I drove up, it was cold up there. I drove up with a friend. We had a Jeep because Gold Hill, Colorado, is up, you know, it was, it's kind of funky roads, and uh, we get there, and we pull up in front of this old Victorian house, and there's a, there's a Bentley, 1967 Bentley, pulling a trailer with two motocross bikes on it. And I'm going, damn, you know, this is Rockstar. <laughs> and we get to the door, and the door opens, and there's Steven Stills with his V-neck maroon, with a button-down shirt, and Steve Stills, man. And, and, he, and I came in, I had no base I didn't bring a base or anything. I just was there to meet him. And uh, we the first thing he did was put it, he says, here, let's smoke. do you smoke marijuana? I said, sure. You know, I was kind of, not really, but I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so we smoked some, smoked a joint and there was a tiny little stereo, a portable with two speakers on the side. He puts this thick piece of plastic and he explained to me, he said, this is an acetate. I said, wow, what's that? And he said, it's the direct, from the two-inch tape, the process goes onto this plastic, this thick plastic that can only be played maybe 25 times. And a producer looks and makes sure the frequencies are right and the mastering was correct. And this is the last time you get a chance to make any decision. So he played me the acetate. This is February of 1969. And I heard CSN up in the mountains with Stephen Stills. And when I heard do, 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 I, I just couldn't believe it. it. just changed my whole life. So he plays the whole record for me. And he says, What kind of bass do you play? And there on the ground was a Spender a, a case. And, and I said, Well, I play a Gibson. He says, No, nah, nah, <laughs> no, that's not it. And he opened up the case and he handed me this. And I said, God, it's just. I always thought it was the neck was too big for my hands. And he said, look at my hands. They're not much bigger than yours, but this is the right sound. And that bass he showed me was the bass that played. Grandma, he still has it. I've used it. 61 Fender Precision that was played on. Uh, he played bass on all that, the entire record, CSN. Steven's a great bass player. So uh, he said, this is what you got to play. and uh, And he says let's is do you have a place where we could jam i'm going to be here for another two days so i set up a, uh, i found some guys and stephen didn't even have a all he had was his acoustic guitar he didn't have an electric guitar so we found a 70 it was a late 60s strat friend of ours a friend of my friends had a strat so we met up in the mountains at a cabin with a three-piece band called conal implosion at the University of Denver kind of a power trio cream type band and we went to their cabin and uh, we we uh, the gal that was kind of the house mother there was this, uh, getting her doctorate in psych- psychology but she was also a freak she was kind of, and she made a whole big soup uh, uh, like a tea of peyote tea so we all drank this tea and got really high and played music and that's when Steve and I connected He went, oh, man, you're the guy. We really, it was just magic. We played great together, and he acknowledged, you know, he was the first one to say, hey, man, you can do this. And he said, listen, we're going to do, we're scheduled to do some kind of thing called Woodstock. We don't know anything about it, any details. We're going to do one more gig. Here's my manager's number. His name is David Geffen. And uh, call him, stay in touch with him, but I want you to do this. And I was 19. So. I, uh, that was, uh, that didn't work out. It didn't happen because Neil Young had Gregory Reeves in mind and uh, I called Geffen and they acted like, who are you? <laughs> I said, Stephen Stills told me to call you that I have this gig, the Woodstock. And that, so that didn't happen. Wow. And, uh, and I didn't meet up with Stephen again until he moved to Boulder. So back to originally what we talked about was that the Bullen introduced me to Walsh and then I, but before I met Bolin and before I met Walsh, I met Stephen Stills. And he turned me on to the Fender. And when I met Joe Walsh and started working with him, I was playing a Fender jazz. And then one day in the middle of Barnstorm, the first year, um, Fender gave Joe a maple net fretless bass right off the old off the old factory, out of the factory. And Joe said, here, you should learn this. And that was the beginning of the fretless. So it was 1970, probably 1972. After we did the Bar- the Barnstorm record, the very first one with Joe Walsh is no fretless bass. That's all Fender. Fender Precision or Fender. I had two basses of, no, uh, and Joe had her, uh, a jazz. So, but um, the... Set, the smoker you drink, the player you get is the introduction of the, of of that bass, of the fretless bass, and then the predominant one that got the most attention was the Souvenir's record by Dan Fogelberg with Walsh produced, and that's all uh, the five tracks I played on are all fretless bass. That was really the beginning.
1: As a bass player, I'm a non-musician, so explain to me what it, what it's like to start playing the fretless bass for the first time. I mean, what does fretless bass give you and what's your relationship to it?
0: Well, the, the fretless bass in here, I'll show you as we, I have one right here. This is the exact copy. This is the exact copy of of the Fender that Joe gave me. Wow. Okay, it's, it's exact copy. I mean, it has, it, that's the back. But the front has no frets. There's no, there's no way to tell where you are. Okay? There's no way except for the dots. Okay? Yeah. That's what Joe gave. That's the first one that I had was from Joe. And what it is is if you look at it closely, if you look at it closely, there's nothing between the string and the bridge so that creates a sound that's different if you have a piece of metal called a fret the string touches the fret the finger presses it down and the vibration and the sound goes through okay but that's metal metal to metal to wood but no actually metal to metal to sound this is metal to wood and then the sound that's the difference
1: how easy is it for you to learn how to play the fretless bass?
0: Because I had so much ear training in in pitch for my trumpet playing, it was a matter of me not the positioning of my hands, which is a normal upright bass player. It's all positioning. Right. I didn't learn that way. I learned by a fretted bass, and I played it not like a guitar, but... I had my own technique, and once I started playing fretless, it, I just developed a way to play, to play in perfect pitch because I knew just the micro-movement of the slightest movement on the finger going one way or the other is sharp or flat.
1: Okay, so when I listen, if I'm in the car and Rocky Mountain Way comes on...
0: The that's, of- not a fret, that's a fretted bass.
1: Okay, but it, it is a song that you were involved in writing. Absolutely. At that time.
0: There was only three of us who played on that track. That was Joe Walsh, Joe Vitelli on drums, and me on bass. And Vitali and Joe did all the keyboard parts. Rod Grace was not involved. God bless him. He just passed away, but there was the three of us that did that record. And that was done on a Fender Jazz Bass in Miami at Criteria Studios and completed it at Caribbean.
1: So when I hear that song, if I'm in the car, yeah. then my instinct first thing is to turn it up. like it's just one of those songs. So when you hear it, what does it make you think of? When you hear some Rocky Mountain Way in the car, what, what comes to your mind immediately?:
0: I, You know what? The joy of the groove, you know, the feeling of the song, is I never get it's never been out of fashion in terms of, of the pocket. I guess that, and it's weird because I just saw Joe. I was in the studio with him for 11 days, and I can say this now before I probably couldn't announce any of this, but we have started on another record, whether it be Joe Walsh or Barnstorm. I believe it's a Barnstorm record in Joshua Tree. Um, I just, it's been uh, just a week ago, I came back. So we were there for 11 days. So Joe mentioned to me as we were cutting new tracks. To me and Vitali, he says, "Get just be free, man. Let yourself go, just like we did when we cut that basic track of Rocky, Rocky Mountain Way." So when I hear that track, I remind myself of of the the joy and uh, of playing together in the studio and grooving, not thinking about anything other than this this feel, this feel of what we are doing, because. He hadn't written any lyrics. All we had was, was the basic track. Dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun. And what I, the joy I get out of it is there's hardly anybody who plays the exact bass part that I wrote. <laughs> I, I mean, I love Timothy B., don't get me wrong, but to this day, the Eagles don't play it the way we played it. And when we, it's just something a little bit different. So and it's uh, it's 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 a, it's a real uh, a lot of bass players I hear cover bands they always do the da 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 I never play that on the bass <laughs> on the root notes are I'm doing the run I'm doing a completely different thing so I always get a chuckle when I hear somebody play it who isn't you who know, doesn't hasn't studied it so to answer your question I just find sheer joy in it man because it
1: it, st- it stands up it's got legs. Still, after all these years, and I mean, it's a classic. It's it's heard all the time still.
0: Yeah, it's on a. And my publisher tells me my publisher uh, was responsible. He was a he was involved in Shelter Records and with with lots of with. He still has the cassette of Tom Petty's uh, cassette when Tom signed with Shelter Records, and so he tells me he says, "Do you don't you realize that you're part of a?" A classic. I mean, how how fortunate! I mean, the song that's never not going to be stopped. It's going to always be played. And and, and it, it took me a while to really grasp how fortunate I was. And,
1: and and many other things you were involved in. I mean, after that.
0: Oh no! Listen, and I've I've accepted the fact, and and I'm vocal about it. I've worked with, I think five artists who are all in the in the in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, from Joe Walsh to Stephen Stills, twice inducted, to Cat Stevens to Elton John to Daryl Hall and John Oates. So that, that's a pretty good track record.
1: That's for sure. So let me ask you, and I don't know if you can answer this, but even at the age of 19, people were saying, you should meet Stephen or you should meet Joe Walsh. What is it about your playing that distinguished you so early
0: do you know I I think the ability that I had because of my education to listen, I had I had I learned that really early And one of the summers before I met Joe Walsh, the summer after I played with Tommy in New York, a guy came up to me in the village who was listening to me play with with Tommy and Jeremy Stein and these people in the village, and his name was John Hammond Jr. Okay, so John came up to me, and he had gone to school. His father was John Hammond Sr., and his, his but a lot of people don't realize that John Hammond Sr. was, his mother was a Vanderbilt. So John Hammond Sr., the reason why he became who he was, he was raised by black maids, and he loved music, and he had a stipend, I think, back in the 20s and 30s of about 60 grand a year so he went off to be recording people early on and then became a staff producer at uh, columbia records and discovered bob dylan they called it hammond's folly then he discovered bruce springsteen and then he discovered i can go down the list resa franklin anyway his son was uh went to uh a private school in the village, usually Jewish uh, intellectuals, liberal, it was called the Little Red Schoolhouse. It's a very famous school. And Jeremy went to that school because Jeremy's, Steig's father was Joseph Steig, the guy that was the cartoonist for The New Yorker and then became famous, more famous for writing Shrek. And and Jeremy's mother's sister was... was, uh, was was the most famous anthropologist, Margaret Mead. So these guys, and Jeremy's a jazz musician who played with Gil Evans. He was a freak, an acid freak. He loved LSD, and he was way older than us. He was about 10 years older than us, Tommy and I. So uh, John Hammond Jr. came to the gig to say hello to Jeremy and came up to me after the set was over and said, hey, man, I really like the way you play. Would you like to play come and play the blues with me? And I didn't really know who he was. I knew he, he was somebody because Jeremy made a big deal. You no, know, you gotta meet Jeep, you know, and and didn't even really talk about who his dad was. I didn't know till later, until I really spent time with John and got a chance to listen to a lot of real to real tapes his father had given him of street corner musicians in New Orleans in nineteen twenty eight. Stuff like that. I mean, John Jr. And, and you can't, I mean, he's still a very good friend of mine. And occasionally I'll say, hey, Jr. He says, I'm not Jr. <laughs> I mean, he and his father had a real, real tough relationship. So anyway, John took me on the road, and I worked with a drummer named Charles Otis. And Charles Otis was... a an older black man who played drums. He was the What I Say drummer, I was told, with Ray Charles. He was from New Orleans. And my experience with Charles on the road really, really cemented, really uh, uh, what the bass is all about. And he explained to me that the bass is the foundation of the building, and if the foundation moves around, the building topples. And that... Don't be worried about playing. Playing less notes is more. The foundation is strength. And all you got to do is remember, man, you got to have the feel to make those women's stomach feel it when they're walking the door. And that's what he taught me. And I learned from him that too many notes was too much. And my style of playing, sometimes probably some people would say, well, it's not as melodic as Dee Murray's or whatever. But my thing is tied into the bass drum and um my style was is, is less is more and i'll be melodic if you, if you ask me to but i'm not going to offer it to you until you decide like a steven or even a walsh say no i want you to do this or elton was was uh was piano based so when i recorded with elton i just stood on the left side of him and just washed his left hand and memorized the song but guitar players have a tendency to be. A little bit more elaborate about what they what they want sometimes so that's a different mindset so i think again my the secret to my success was learning early on the real function of the bass guitar of what the bass does and what it should do and uh i learned it early and it kept me from playing too much and uh, once I started playing the fretless, then I had, a, uh, I had a reputation already for being a solid bass player, and then the fretless added one more thing to it. It's,
1: it's interesting because I don't know if people would describe you as um, a blues bassist, but when you talk about your work with John Hammond Jr., or John Hammond, also Otis Taylor, who you had a, a big impact in producing, I, I guess, and and also you did some recordings where you, you helped out on some recordings of Freddie King.
0: It's my favorite. And I'm so glad you mentioned it because that to me is one of my my favorite stories and to have and I don't know if you know who's on that track. I play it on one track. This is Sweet Home Chicago. I was Chicago, signed right? Sweet Home Chicago and I've been told that Clapton Clapton played rhythm guitar on it. And I don't know, I think it's Jamie Oldecker, might be on the drums. It was all cut in England. And uh, uh, I don't know who plays the piano. But whoever it is, it's somebody heavy. And uh, it's not Nikki Hopkins, but it's somebody heavy. And uh, I was with our, I signed a deal, a solo deal, after Elton John had retired in August of 76. I got, uh, I was was signed to Robert Stigwood Organization. And I was in the process of making a record. Actually, I was going to be in the movie Saturday Night, Saturday Night Fever, but it, it didn't work out. <laughs> and so I was making a record, and the president of RSO was a guy named Bill Oaks. He ran the company, and he called me and he says, "Hey, man, we own Freddie King had passed away, and we own uh, Freddie. His last record label was RSO, and RSO also uh, handled Eric Clapton and the Bee Gees." And so he said, I've got this track. I want you to, could you, do you say, do you have your base? And I was living in Boulder, but I was in, in uh, LA, uh, either doing, starting to begin my work on the record, or I might've still been in the process of, of going to do the movie Saturday Night Fever. I was doing it. I did a, I did a, a screen test with John Travolta. I was going to be one of the, I was the kid that was going to, that jumps off the bridge. That was my gig. That was one my, my part in the movie, and, the, and the, the, that's a whole other story. So uh, Bill Oakes says, I said, hey, hey man, I do, uh, I'm do. i not in L.A., but I'm coming. I'll bring my bass. He says, I've got a Freddie King song, and we we're putting together um, uh, 1934-76 because he passed away record, and there's no bass on this one track. So I went into the record plant with Bill, his engineer's, and I'll never forget it, man. All of a sudden, there's Freddie talking, talking people through the song. It's all on the 24 track, and man, I did one or two passes. There's a couple things I wanted to follow the the left hand of the uh, of the uh, piano player, and we did that track. And to me, whenever I hear it, and I have it in my car, I just got another copy of it, a remastered, and. It's just kick-ass, man. And for me to have played... And I met Freddie one time. He came up to Caribou Ranch. I was in the studio with Stephen Stills, and somebody called and said Freddie had played in Boulder, and he had his bus, and wanted to come up to Caribou and see Stephen and see the ranch, see the studio. And so I'd met Freddie one time, and he was just so such a beautiful person. This big black man gets off the bus with two white girls. One girl on each side, man this big smile on his face and he had problems breathing because that's 8,600 feet up there And, and gets off his big bus and he was just beautiful man and so I to be able to have played with Freddie King even though he was dead on this track and hear him and play the bass part to it and hear the other musicians and I'm so proud to have been given that opportunity so yeah I am I'm a blues bass. I guess um, uh, it's it's all about pocket, being in the the groove. Not uh, Steven Stills used to say, "Well, you and Wyman play a little bit alike," you because he was good friends with Bill Wyman, and he'd say, "You know, it's I, I'm I'm being a little bit behind the beat. I don't know. There's I guess you can analyze all the different styles, but it depends on what artist I'm playing with. On a Fugleberg track, I don't think I'd be behind the beat. But on blues, it's a little bit behind, a little lazier. So that's a good question. I I think that what, 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 I have classical training, so I know what, what Bach would do. So it's a combination of things, man. It's a combination of experience and playing live. I've always said that I felt that I was one of the best at understanding the concept of playing a stadium. And it helped having great like Clive Franks, who did all of Elton John's uh, sound. I did 83 concerts with Elton. The two of the big ones were two, two nights, two afternoons at Dodger Stadium. And I had people like Toto and those guys before they were Toto, who were there later, said, we were there, man, in the nosebleed seats, and it sounded the bass. Everything sounded incredible. So I had a concept of understanding where the how to control the frequency with my with my fingers when i was playing venues different venues i kind of used the bounce i would never have put it in the air in my my life and i don't intend on doing it and if elton john's still playing with wedges i continue to do that too so uh i just have a, 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 a my hearing's impeccable i haven't lost i've lost maybe a few frequencies but not like my contemporaries. I'm seeing lots of my friends who are, have lost their hearing. So my, I think the secret to my success is listening, uh, using the bass as a conversation, meaning I understand what the song's about lyrically, melodically, where it's going to go, where the holes are, and creating, knowing that silence is more important than notes. Oh, And also ego. Take away the ego. I don't need to show... That I can play a little riff here, to just to put my print on it. That's not where it's at. So
1: that's really the secret to my success: it's a so, conversation. Well, going back to the stadiums, was wasn't one of your first gigs without John at Wembley Stadium?
0: It was the first gig. <laughs> yeah, it was June. Uh, it was summer, summer solstice um, at Wembley Stadium with uh, Chaka Khan. I can't remember the rest of the groups, uh, Joe Walsh before he joined the Eagles, the Eagles, the Beach Boys, and Elton John to 100,000 people.
1: Wow. And this was the uh, Captain Fantastic.
0: Yes, we did, uh, which was a huge mistake on Elton's part, but he was Elton John. We did the entire Captain Fantastic record at Wembley, the very beginning of the show. Nobody, The record had only been released for a week in London. So I mean he was that was a crazy move, but we did it and people were leaving. The next day it says Beach Boys three, Elton Zero. Because the Beach Boys did five encores.
1: But that's recording that's on the deluxe version of the
0: album, is it not? It's not supposed to be. Here's the deal. <laughs> when I got off the stage, Gus Dudgeon says I and to Gus didn't took a while for Gus accept me as the bass player. He'd worked with D. Nigel for so long. I was kind of the low man on the totem pole. And uh, uh, there was hostility there. There was, uh, he didn't like the fretless. And uh, uh, I got off the stage at Wembley. We had a remote truck there. We were recording it live. And he said, uh, Kenny, uh, I couldn't get a sound on your bass. Your bass sucks or something. He was It was kind of derogatory. And I went, oh, okay. And then How many years later, I get a call. I'm living in Mexico City, and I get a call from the BBC, and they say, we're going to fly you to Vegas to do an interview about the Wembley thing because they just released Captain Fantastic with a live record.
1: Right.
0: We were told from that day on that that would never be released because he didn't get a decent sound. So when I, you know what I did? I flew into Vegas and I meekly had the limo guy take me to a record store, and I listened to it on the way over to this interview because I was really worried that it really was going to suck because that was our first gig, and uh, it didn't. It, it was shaky and on all kinds of levels. And uh, but really, there's some when I listen to it to this day, and there's some really, really good feel, and that's what Elton wanted. Listen, don't get me wrong. D and Nigel are incredible. I, you know, I I took a beating when those guys, I had hate fans, hate mail from D Murray fans. To this day, people say, how do you figure you can even step into those shoes? And I said, well, fuck you. Kiss my ass. I have my own shoes. I'm not feeling D's shoes. D would did what he did, and I respect him for it. And I was... Elton fired him. I didn't I didn't push my way into the gig. I wasn't really even a big fan of Elton's. So uh, when I got the gig. So I respect what he did, but I played different and uh, that's uh that's that's what it is. And I'm I'm happy that that I had the opportunity to 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 do it. But Nigel and D didn't swing like we did, and that's why Elton changed the
1: band. And those two albums probably don't get the recognition that they deserve but I, I get the feeling that they might well be to- it's
0: you know what's happened is that blue moves has started to the one that doesn't get the recognition if is rock of the west is because that's that's a kick-ass that's a live record man except for some of the bass overdubs because because he i there's only three tracks on there that's fretless bass we cut every one of those tracks live and if gus wouldn't have pulled me aside and said i didn't get a sound on your for you know, and I had to play a fretted Hoffner bass that was Paul McCartney's Paul McCartney had given it to Jim Gershio. And I was uh I we finished the very last uh it was August of seventy-five. We finished the very last track. Everybody was gonna go off to eat and party. And Gus Dudgeon pulled me aside and said, Man, I had problems getting sound on your bass, and I, I just I could not bite the hand I, that fed me, and I just said, well, what can I do? He says, well, do you have any other bases?" I said, no, this is all I play, a fretless bass. And he said, well, go ask Gershio. And Jim Gershio, uh, being who Jim is, had uh, several basses, and the only one he could get a sound on was a Hofner bass that McCartney had given Jim as a gift, because Jimmy mixed the Ram record, his second uh, solo record, and so Jimmy had Hoffner, It was gold. It had gold pieces on it. I mean, it's like what? And the action was like this, like super high. Right. And and apparently, it was the only one he could get a sound on. So Island Girl and uh, the hit off of there and stuff. That was all with the with uh, the Hofner bass, McCartney. You know, a gift. So. I don't know what to say, man, other than when I heard the record, I hated him for doing it, but I just did it. And when he came back from England and with the mixes, I was blown away because the bass was so powerful. But a lot of it had to do with with Roger Pope was one of the greatest drummers ever. People just don't know that. I People like um, Roger Taylor, I ran into Roger Taylor of Queen uh at a concert i went with yusuf yusuf islam cat stevens i went to see van morrison at the royal albert hall in 2009 2010 i think and i was doing a record with 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 yusuf and roger taylor i sat next to roger and he told me you know how much he and john deacon used to love and hear us play uh the rhythm sections and and how and i said i know roger pope was one of the greatest drummers ever. And people just didn't realize, he was so funky, man. And the English, he was one of those Englishmen who felt it a, just a little bit different way than than most. He was his own, John Bonham had the thing, Roger didn't hit as hard as John, but he had a, he had a, he was a soulful cat, man. Soulful, cat. I never even looked at it when we played. Man, he just laid it down. His timing was, he had impeccable time, but a great feel.
1: So after and, that, you, you joined Daryl and John Oates.
0: I did. I had a solo deal with with RSO Records. I released a single, but I got uh, Tommy Matola got a hold of me. They had "Rich Girl" was the number one single or close to the top ten, and their bass player quit. So Tommy Matola got a hold of me some way uh, through RSO or something, and said, "Listen, we have an emergency. Could you?" possibly. Um, so I went to see Hall & I'd heard their singles, but I never, you know, I wasn't like a big fan. And they only had She's Gone, and you know, they had a couple singles. And it was the beginning of their success. And I went to the Santa Monica Civic and heard them. They blew me away. I was blown away. I said, oh, okay. I'll, I'll. So it was just do a tour of the summer, and then i get back to what I was doing. So, that turned out. I left my deal at RSO. Tommy offered me he says, if you'll come and work with me um, with Hollow Notes. And I said, the only way I'll do it is I have to hire. Let's get Roger Pope and and, um, and Caleb Quay because, the, you know, they're out of a gig. Elton retired and you need a band that you can record with, not a bunch of kids that you do what you tell them to do. One kid was great, though. And I'm not taking it away from the other guys. They were all good, but they weren't recording musicians. And and I told them, you need a, a band that tours and records. And that's what I brought to the table. I brought Caleb and I brought Roger Pope to the Hall of Notes.
1: Okay, so um, let me ask you about keyboards, because you haven't talked about playing piano, but somewhere along the way, you became a keyboardist.
0: Well, you know, it was out of necessity of of, of composing because I could play a little guitar and you'd think it would be something I would really move towards would be more of a guitar player, but I'm not. I can get around and I can play and I write on guitar, but the piano was the big thing for me. I never took a lesson in my life. I never had a piano lesson. And I, I just taught myself how to play out of necessity because I knew I had these things in my head. I heard things and I had to, uh, it's taken me a lifetime, man. I mean, I'm the best I've ever been in my life right now, but I wouldn't, you know, go for hire as a keyboard player. I, I use it as part of my production when I produce people. I've got a, a really new record you should check out by Eddie Turner. The keyboard became a dominant thing for me because I, I, in my productions, because I could play, I heard all these parts. i played with Mike Finnegan. i played with Joe Vitali. I've played with um, Elton John. i played with... I've been around some great keyboard players. I mean, I so for me it was a necessity in terms of composing and then in my production works because I was a parts guy, I could play little parts over and over and be precise and not be a soloist. It worked out great in my productions. So the keyboard is man, it's it's like it's it's to me I I love bass, don't get me wrong, but the, the piano is still the ultimate goal for me. I'm still climbing I'm still climbing.
1: So some of the solo material, which leans more towards classical, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah. F- so I, um, the uh, the very first instrumental type of, and there was vocals on it, was Visions of My Ancestors, it's Visiones de Mi Antipasados. And I did that in 91, after I had a deal with CBS that kind of went south, but you can look up a couple songs, Canción Sentimental, in Spanish, produced by that one track, produced by David Foster. And um, and then uh, there's another song called Someday We'll Be Together, El Camino. Um, it's called, and it's it's been one of the top tunes uh, in Brazil since 1989. Um, it was the, one of the top. It was top fifty at uh, number twenty six or something in nineteen in the eighties. Uh, it was in a uh, in a Brazilian soap opera. It's a great track. Umberto Gatica produced it. Uh, Michael Mike wrote and all the heavies in L.A. played on it, and it's my tune. I sang it. Mike writing at that from by the time we get to the late eighties at really started to progress because of my keep you know, my ability to, I practiced a lot, man. Put a lot of hours into it. Stopped working. I could afford to. I took a year off and uh, I had an apartment in New York and I took a year off and just studied acting and, and composed and went to the clubs and came back and just hit it hard working, playing my the piano. I had an acoustic piano and I had an electric Rhodes. and I've pounded. I've spent thousands of hours.
1: So that the piano playing on your solo albums is all you
0: yes oh yeah oh yeah and that's that's back then i'm i'm i think i'm a better pianist now
1: i know you've been working with eddie turner tell me about what you're working on these days
0: uh i'm composing i have my my girlfriend is a retired divorce attorney we've been together now for six years i've I've had a few marriages and relationships and now at my age I've really met someone I think and I'm mature enough to to really have a fantastic relationship and have a relationship with someone who has become my lyricist my collaborator over the COVID we've written 50 songs uh I mean copywritten songs and uh, everybody from Willie Nelson there's a, from Willie Nelson to right now Henley and the Eagles everybody's kind of taking a look at this material that we've come up with so i've been really concentrating on writing i did a spiritual project with uh with a guy named michael florwax a local radio guy uh kind uh, uh, when i say spiritual a jesus you know somewhat of a christian record i did it with him last year um eddie turner record complete and now I've been in, it was in Joshua Tree at Rancho Del Luna with, with Joe Walsh and Barnstorm. Joe Vitale, Joe Walsh, Bill Simpson producing, uh, Bruce Sugar, who's Ringo's guy, uh, uh, engineer in this really, really interesting studio called Rancho Del Luna, with the queens of the Stone Age and uh, Foo Fighters, a whole group of people turned Joe on to it. Joe Walsh, and he said, so we went there for 11 days.
1: So what was that uh, like the, after all these years? I mean, I know uh, you play with Joe.
0: Man. It was interesting. It was uh it was uh socially we all lived in the same house together. Joe rented a house. So we had Bill Simzek, who's seventy-eight now, one of the greatest producers. I mean, look at it look at his legacy mm-hmm. from from uh he, he uh he recorded the thrill is gone with B.B. King. I mean he was the producer. He taught BB and doing strings oh, on yes. the blues record. Anyway, so he, Bill, then Hotel California and the Who. I mean, I can go on and on and on. And Bill was there in the same house. We had a five-bedroom house in Joshua Tree, and Joe and Joe and I were on the upper level, and and Simsek had his had his uh, his space. And we met for breakfast every day, and then we'd get in the car and go to the studio from ten o'clock until four, and then we'd take. Those guys had taken nap because they're older than I am. And uh, I'd walk the desert and hang out and look at the snakes. And uh, then we'd have dinner. Joe would do his Zoom uh, uh, AA meeting. And we'd have dinner and talk and laugh about old times. Listen to play at the keyboard, fool around. So it was a really good time. The hard part for me personally was that in the studio, Joe became a little bit more intense about what he wanted in, in which I was always told was part of the toxic part of the Eagles that uh, just, you know, anger into in frustration opposed to, man, there's an easier way to get your point across rather than shushing somebody or yelling at somebody about what you want. So if that was anything that was different about this 50 years later... If somebody was to say, did Joe used to yell at people in 71? I'd say, no. What about now? I'd say, yes.
1: <laughs> After many, many years of not playing together, and I know you have on, on and off, but to wind up many, many years later to, in the studio, is it very comfortable to play with one another?
0: absolutely when when the when we're finally in that zone oh man absolutely it's like we never stopped playing together and we just and it was there was a lot of other distractions getting producers and engineers getting used to a studio and them having their own issues and and uh so there were and it was it was all of a sudden after 50 years you're thrown into a kind of a hippy dippy studio. Vitali Vitaly, Walsh, and I were in the same room, probably about five feet away from each other, in a hallway where the drums... I mean, this if you look up Rancho Del Luna, you'll see it's a house. And everywhere there's equipment in the bedroom is where all these amps, guitar amps are. I mean, its, it's it was a really an interesting choice, and I loved it. I don't know some people didn't, but I certainly did, and I think Joe Walsh did too. But I think, it, it, you know, if you're a real tech person... Because of the COVID, the studio hadn't been operating over a year, so I think there was some dust and sand and a few things. But it didn't bother me because the vibe was still there. To answer your question, there were moments where it really did, we were back to where we were back in 1970, 72.
1: Wow, that must have been a great feeling.
0: Oh yeah, man, and you'll be hearing it because uh, I don't think it was just you know it was we walked away. Joe was very happy, so he'll take all this to his studio, and you'll you will be definitely uh, there's going to be something coming out at some point.
1: Do you think you'll tour
0: again? I think it's a possibility. Yeah, but the big train is the Eagles. Yeah, everything kind of falls behind whatever the whatever the 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 plans are for the Eagles. So.
1: Kenny, um, I really appreciate you doing this. We we met many, many years ago, and it's nice to get you. No, I
0: remember it. you, man. As soon as I saw you, I remembered you. I said, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so uh, um, my last question to you. Tell me, how, how do you summarize this amazing journey you've been on musically?
0: Not over. <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. No, no it's, it's just getting better all the time. And I've I'm, you know what? It's The journey is that I've been able to look back now. And savor the past. It went by really quick, man. The whole thing's gone by very, very quick. So, uh, right when I think, uh, right when I think it's over, something else come You know, it keeps keeps coming. And and then I, I I reflect and I listen back to some of the work that I was involved with, and I'm really happy, man. I'm I'm leaving everything I've. One of my favorite tracks, and I was really happy to see that Elton shows. Probably some of the favorite stuff that I did with him Um, on his diamond or whatever he's calling his his box set that just was released last
1: jewel box or something. The
0: jewel box, yeah. And he's the 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 ones he chose are my favorites. Of of you know, he really did. I was really blown away. And if I when I see him or. If that ever happens, I would tell him how much I appreciated the fact. Like Chameleon is one of my favorite. To me, uh, Bass Magazine did an whole article about it, and I said it was like to me. It just really, it, it really represented all the the styles and and um, influences that I had in, in one incredible, beautiful song that out and Bernie wrote. Well, thank thank you for all the great music
1: that you've contributed to. I still listen to the Stills album a lot and listen to the album. Oh,
0: thanks, man. Oh, man, thank you. know, another one, too, which is really cool listening to is the live hollow Notes record. Mm-hmm. The, uh, that, that's that's a that's a really good-sounding record. I mean, not necessarily a good-sounding, but a good-playing live record. And you've heard Daryl's Sacred Songs, right? Yeah. The solo record. You know. I don't have to tell you. Okay, ma'am. Well listen, thank you for everything. I really appreciate the the you know, you asking me to do it too.
1: Well thank you for it, doing it tonight. I really appreciate it.